So I think younger entrepreneurs see these other entrepreneurs on the beach side with their laptops and taking selfies in, in all these awesome locations. But the reality is, when it comes down to it, they're probably huddled up into some cheap Airbnb apartment with no view or anything. And that's where the real work is. And no one ever really sees that. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is the program where we believe building a profitable business is one of the best ways to create more personal and financial freedom in your life. Thanks for joining us. In fact, I can't say us. It's just going to be me this week. Boss Man just recently landed back in Austin, Texas, and he's reacclimating with his cat in his house. So I got to give him some rest. <laughs> Today, it's going to be me and you and today's guest, Greg Barry. We're here in Chiang Mai, Thailand. We just got done with a week's worth of entrepreneurial festivities with hundreds of other entrepreneurs, the so-called DCBKK, which is our annual event. I'm going to share more thoughts about how the event went and what we learned from the event in a subsequent episode. But today, I wanted to introduce you to Greg Barry, who is someone that I look forward to speaking with every time I get to catch up with him at an event like this. He's been an awesome contributor to the Dynamite Circle community over the years, speaking at our events. And you know, even though he's achieved a great deal of success with this company, running it at seven figures, completely location independent, he's super humble about it. I'm excited to bring Greg on the show today to share the story of Municipid, which is actually based in Philadelphia, which is my neck of the woods. So Greg and I, we grew up in the same general area. As you'll hear in today's episode, Greg's done a lot in his career. He started his first business at the age of 18, which was an IT company. He got elected to public office at the age of 24, and he started Municipid, which you're going to hear the story of today when he was 26 years old. Today, Municipid is a seven-figure company. The inspiration for this talk is really a high-quality problem that a lot of entrepreneurs end up facing. It's essentially, how do you deal with success? Like, What do you do when you've built the company of your dreams, the thing that you've planned out. When you say, I want a seven-figure company, I want to be location independent, and what happens when you get there? There's a whole host of new questions and new challenges, some of which we try to touch on in today's conversation. But in order to get there, we needed to backtrack to hear the story of Municipid. So sit back, relax, grab a coffee or a beverage of your choice, and I'm happy to introduce to you Mr. Greg Berry. My short pitch is it's eBay for government, and so government agencies can sell with us or auction off things they no longer need, and it's open to the public to buy. One of the things that you mentioned in our community is that you feel like there's an opportunity for people with internet marketing skills to deal with governments and to sell to governments. Why do you feel that way? So government is not an easy group of people to deal with, but there's a lot of opportunity there. So when I started Municipid, everyone told me it would never work because I was mainly dealing with the government. And I just thought, 
well, first of all, I took that as a challenge, but it's tough because they're not really interested in change. And in many cases, just not really interested in anything new. And especially with respect to technology, they view it as potentially more work or complicated, or they just don't understand it. And we, I think we're successful because we make it surprisingly simple for governments to use. So like once they see it in action, and then they really can't argue with the results, then they get it. Was there a certification process that was required? No, not necessarily. I had experience with government, which was really helpful in getting it off the ground. But then once the results started coming in, we started getting testimonials, took that on the road, and kind of started growing from there. In fact, 80% of our business comes in from referrals. Uh, we're adding about 30 agencies a month. And, and when you say agency, does that mean like any, like a school or a police station or something like that? Yep. So any anything really on the local or state level of government, including so state level, counties, local municipalities, you know, cities, boroughs, townships, and school districts and universities, and pretty much all based in the U.S., and we have a handful of agencies in Canada. Basically, the way Municipid works is I'm a police station. I'm registered with an account for Municipid. I want to unload some cruisers, strip all the special police stuff off of them, put them up on your website, and then anybody in the United States can pick up these old Impalas and drive them around and scare their friends when they're behind them. Exactly. <laughs> we have quite a bit of that. And the interesting thing is kind of our customers changed over the years. Early on, it was sort of what I would refer to as the professional buyer, people that knew about these surplus sales of government and would kind of take advantage of the old processes that these governments would use. So they would be able to go in and buy a, a Crown Victoria, let's say, an old police car for $300 when it was really worth three grand. And now the township's getting three grand for it. And so we're kind of taking the middleman out and we're having parents buy their kids their first car off Municipid or just people wanting an entrepreneur mobile. <laughs> it's interesting how we're getting directly to the public and kind of cutting out the middleman, although there's still opportunities with that. We have quite a few buyers that are parts people and resellers and that sort of thing. So, And it's just not vehicles. It's heavy equipment, tools, you know, IT equipment, furniture kitchen equipment, like literally anything you can possibly think of has probably been sold on Municipid. So the final piece of context is, could you describe your team? Currently, we have three full-time employees. We're going to be adding at least another full-time employee soon, and probably an additional one or two in the near term. And then we have a handful, I'd say, depending on workload, we're probably between five and 10 virtual assistants and contractors amongst marketing, software development, proposal writing, and you go to an office in Philadelphia with your best friend, is your GM, is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we were friends since uh, we were born. In fact, uh, he was born two days ahead of me, and today's my birthday. So <laughs> Happy birthday, man. By the way, I couldn't think of a better <laughs> gift but to be on the Tropical MBA. <laughs> so why do you go to that office so often? What motivates you to go there? You don't have to. You could be anywhere. Right. Well, I like my big 24-inch monitor and then my second 20-inch monitor <laughs> and the super fast internet, the vibe there. We have private offices in a co-working facility, so there's good energy. We're not necessarily in the same room. We're in kind of two different hard offices, but to be able to just communicate there. But it's, sometimes it's kind of funny where we're sitting in these two offices and we're still talking over Slack. You know, we might never even talk in person the entire day. And quite frankly, sometimes I'm like, why am I even here? But I think there's a lot of value to having some buzz around and not having distractions that you would kind of on the road in maybe an open co-working space or cafe. 
All right. So I want to step away from business for a little bit to talk about you and we'll get back to business. I have some questions. You know, I'm building a chicken egg marketplace business. So maybe you could give me some advice. But about you specifically, it's, you're from the greater Philadelphia area. I'm from an area called South Central PA, which is essentially the same area of the state. Why are there so few of us in this community? What is it about South Central PA kids that they're not out here? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with how they're raised. I mean, I sort of made a big shift in my early 20s to change my mindset. I I had a poor man's mindset. I think that's kind of how I was raised. It's kind of how a lot of my friends were raised. What does that mean? You know, just not having a bigger picture in mind and kind of thinking like, wow, taking a half hour trip out of town is like a big deal. And, and that kind of was when I was a kid. And I didn't know really or didn't even consider the greater world even though I would travel to the islands and, you know, Mexico and Canada and you know, things like that. But I just, that was more touristy travel. And I think the, the opportunities for understanding weren't there then. And I think it's become a little bit better with podcasts, with better education, internet. People have a lot more access to things that, you know, I just didn't have back in the kind of early 90s, late 90s. So you're in your middle to early 20s and you got the poor man's mindset. Was there an incident that inspired you to think differently? I didn't really know the term for it at the time. And I had an IT company that I started when I was 18 and that I sold in 2010, so in 98. So what's that mean? Does that mean you're running around town fixing people's computers? or Initially, initially, and then I started subcontracting work out. Then I had employees. I merged with another company, basically doing that. But you know, kind of all hands on deck all the time was required. I felt like there was some lost opportunities by staying in that business and you know just getting generally burned out with it. So I ended up selling it to my business partner at the time and moving on from it. But I remember the first time I was outside of the country and I used Skype and was talking to a customer who thought I was two blocks down. Where were you? I was in Mexico. Popped open Skype to do this quick call and literally the customer thought I was two blocks away. <laughs> That was kind of like my like, whoa, you know, like mind blowing. What year was that about? I think it was 2002 or three. And so how did you respond to that sort of insight? Well, at the same time, I read the E-Myth Revisited, which got me thinking about processes, developing processes and sort of things that are repeatable. I think it's probably worth talking about the theme of the E-Myth Revisited really quickly. So my understanding is that the example I always remember from that book is that people that are really good at baking tend to start bakeries. So in your case, like you're really good at computers. So you started a computer company, but the thesis of the book is that actually what you've engaged in is another practice called entrepreneurship, which is essentially about creating processes around those skill sets. So the baker can tend to get sucked into the baking element of a business and then really be terrible at all the things they need to be doing, which is generating a staff, generating processes, scaling the business and making it profitable. Yep. That's exactly right. I was a technician, much like a florist would be, you know, or a baker. And when I read that book, it was definitely like probably the biggest light bulb moment, at least in business for me, when I'm like, you know, you're so right. Like here I am just being a technician. All I did was create a job for myself. I'm not really creating a business. I sort of revamped the IT company, brought on employees, started subbing as much work as I could out. And then when I found a Municipid in 2006, I specifically built that to be one location independent, but a business that I would 
work on and not in, as they say. So it was Greg's experience in government that helped him start this company, Municipid. And for those of you who have been listening to the TMBA for a long time, you'll know that this is a recurring theme around here. If you're wondering about what your next business is going to be, or if you want to get started with your first business, the news is good. You don't have to wait for lightning to strike in the middle of the night. You don't need to have a genius-inspiring idea. All you need to do is think of the problems, the frustrations, the inefficiencies that you face on a day-to-day basis in the job that you're already doing, because that's a profitable project, right? You're getting paid for this. And so it proved to be the case with Greg's company, Municipid. So two years prior to starting Municipid, this is way back in 2004, and while he was still running the IT company he set up at the age of 18, he was elected as a local government official in his native Philadelphia. I always kind of had an interest in politics. I had some friends that were involved in, in local politics, and they encouraged me to run for this upcoming open borough council seat. And I thought it would be a great opportunity. I was 24 at the time and really didn't have a whole lot to lose. But I had an uphill battle to run. I had a primary contest, so I was running up against someone else in my party and then just did the work to win, basically, and really hustled, went door to door, much like I did when I was a teenager in, in middle school selling magazines. And I won kind of a landslide. Actually, I was just really surprised. And so I spent four years on a borough council. But initially, the, one of the first things I saw was how we were selling this stuff for like nothing. And then the next agenda item, we can't come up with $1,000 to pay police overtime to you know set up for a parade or what have you. So it was very frustrating. And I'm thinking, like, why aren't we selling this stuff online? Like, No one even knows the stuff's for sale. I did some research and came up with this idea. And Long story short, I put the website together and went to some other municipalities I knew and convinced them to try it, which was pretty difficult. And they had immediate success almost to the point where they thought something was wrong. Then I knew I was kind of onto something. When did you know it was going to change your life? You know what? I don't know if I have the answer to that because it was kind of a slow roll. I knew Municipal was going to be a long ball game where I was going to be in it for the long haul. I didn't really know at the time that I would still be doing it 11 years later, but as I learned more about working with government and selling to government, that it was going to be a longer haul game. And then I'd say sometime in 2008 or nine, it really took a turn to start ramping up. And so that's when I realized there's so much more opportunity here. So I had to sell the IT company in order to be able to spend all of my time on Municipid. So I raised a small amount of money. How did you do that? Kind of an interesting story. So some point or my early 20s, probably 2021, while all my friends are out partying, I'm at home sending out direct mail letters and like literally licking the envelopes and putting on the labels and stamps myself. And one guy responding, he had a modest size insurance company. I met with him. He ended up being one of our best clients for you know the entire time. And he ended up being the investor that kind of took a gamble on Municipid pretty early on. And how did you know how much money you needed to take and how many shares you would be willing to sacrifice to do it? I didn't know, really. So I kind of understood a little bit of the startup fundraising at a traditional startup, but I knew that that wasn't 
really what was going to happen for us. At, at first, I thought, well, you know, I got to go out. This is, again, 2007, 8, 9, somewhere. In, in fact, I think we won some like Fortune small business business plan contest or something back then. And the idea at this point was like, all right, we got to take this and go to and meet with these venture capitalists and, you know, go that route. And I never really considered other options. So I educated myself about that process and kind of learned on my own, but also meeting with venture capitalists that it's not a really a VC business. And thank God I didn't go down that road or it, nothing ever panned out for that because I, it's just not the business I want to be in. What sort of things did they say to you? Like, why wasn't it? Because government's huge. They said it was, it was too niche. They said it was a lifestyle business. And it, this is <laughs> interesting. When I remember the first time I heard this was probably 2008 or nine, And they said, uh, that's a lifestyle business. And I was insulted. I didn't know what that meant. Basically, it was a no. And that's all I heard was like, oh, well, you're just a lifestyle business. It's too niche. You'll do well. You'll make some good money for yourself. But it's not a, a VC style company. And I took offense to it. And then as I started, you know, continuing to meet with venture capital, I'm like, I really don't want to work with these guys at all. Like, this is not my scene. And I didn't want to give up all this control and be, you know, kind of in bed with people that would put massive amounts of pressure and call you every month and wondering what's going on. When I went to raise sort of, I'll call it seed or angel money, I went to people I know, people that knew me people that trusted me, people that bought into the vision and that the fact that this solves a real world problem. He was on board basically from the beginning. I'm curious about that because you got started around the time that like technology companies like yours were taking off. It makes sense to me as to why you ended up in the conversations with the VC crowd, the technology crowd. You said it's not your scene. We all value so many people in our community look up to you for advice and getting these like I think really amazing conversations with you. So how did you find that scene? So I started looking for other people like me. I'm like, there has to be other people out here that are starting businesses that aren't looking for, for venture capital. And in Philly, we have a small group at the time gathering called the Philly Startup Leaders. And pretty much it was all companies not raising money. Guys and gals like, like me that were involved in, in building businesses that weren't venture-backed. And then I started searching online and found podcasts like the Tropical MBA and, and others and just started really listening. And this one in particular, I'm like, who are these weirdos out in, in the Philippines and Vietnam and Thailand? Like, what are they doing? Like, I just didn't, that was all new to me. I didn't understand it. And now here I am in Chiang Mai <laughs> hanging out talking on the podcast, you know, probably five, six years, seven years later. This week's podcast is sponsored by Hrefs, who are offering one TMBA listener a chance to win a free annual subscription valued at almost $2,000. In order to take advantage and put your name into the hat for that, share this episode on your Facebook page and let us know about it. Hrefs is an absolutely essential tool set if you're looking to grow your traffic from Google. With Hrefs, you can easily learn what people in your niche are searching for and how hard it would be to rank number one in Google for these searches. But the best part is, is you don't have to take our word for it. They have a 14-day risk-free trial, which lets you use all of their tools and data for two weeks, so you have nothing to lose. Just head over to hrefs.com. That's A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And you'll get 14 days to check out their software for free. And thanks again to Hrefs for sponsoring the show. 
you've been in business for 11 years now. What level of intentionality did you have about sustainability when you were starting your business? Did you have an eye on that? Well, as I said, I, I think I had the idea that it was going to be a long haul business. Like, you know, I was going to be in it for, for a long time. Why? Because most people are just hanging on for dear life. Well, one, you know, 11 years into it, I still have a passion for solving this problem and the problem still exists. And I, it's maybe a weird thing to get pissed off about, but when I see a government just giving stuff away, when I know that there's true value to be had from it, it bothers me. And by the way, there's tens of thousands of governments doing this to the tune of billions of dollars. And it's a big problem. But in the beginning, yeah, I think maybe I thought it was going to be a five-year business and, and I'd be acquired and, you know, and move on. But when I, the reality set in that, listen, we're dealing with governments and there's a lot of patience required for that. And you might have a bunch of swings and misses, but eventually you'll start connecting. And that's what happened over time. In hindsight, I wish I would have probably pushed harder early on, but I think everyone can say that. Really? What do you mean? Like you were too busy with your other business? Yeah, or? I had the IT company and I should have just hustled more on this on the side or you know, when I could. I feel like there was probably some missed opportunities early on, but you know, hindsight's 2020, I didn't realize that at the time and it just didn't work out that way. So I don't I don't really kick myself too hard for it, but it's one of those things where I look back and like, yeah, maybe I could have hustled a little bit more early on. Let's talk business philosophy just for a hot second, which is it's typical for people not to recommend creating marketplace style businesses where you need, in order for municipal to work, you have to have a lot of listings so that it builds up an audience and so that they have a good deal. And it's like any imbalance in that system can throw the whole thing off. It's sort of like a dating website. Like girls want to meet boys, but if they come to the website and there's no boys and vice versa, it all gets screwed up. So I've heard this term called a network independent value. Like you create something that's worth going there, even if the ecosystem isn't healthy at that moment. So let's start at square one. Like, did you understand the complications of a marketplace style business when you were starting? Yeah, it was one of my biggest concerns. But I always pretty much knew from the get-go that we needed to focus on the source and the source was the items for sale. I knew I could get the buyers no matter what it took. And in fact, basically with our first couple agencies, they were all local to where I lived and I would create sheets with the pull-off tabs and go into every grocery store, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, any store that had a lot of foot traffic and put these flyers up and then ran ads in, in these little circular newspapers that were pretty cheap and ran ads on the local television during like high school football games. Just kind of did that local marketing around these municipalities. You know, I knew I could get the buyers there. Well, you knew that because there was such a constraint in getting the deals. So you felt like if you got these great deals that it would be a no-brainer for the other half of the audience. Well, right. So the tough part was getting the governments to trust that this process could work and getting them to list items. So once we kind of got over that hurdle, the buyer showed up. And you know, we did the work to get the buyers there. They were one able to find the stuff a lot easier than they could before. Before it was, you know, they had to search through classified ads in local newspapers to try to find stuff for sale. Now it's available right online. Right. And they can bid on it when they wanted to. Have you ever had imbalances in that ecosystem where you have to like manually pump up one side or the other? Not really, actually, but it was a slow roll. You know, it took a while for it to really start that flywheel effect. So most people point out to this style of business as a liability or a concern. What are the advantages to 
sort of creating a marketplace in your view? One, you have kind of control of both sides. You know, unlike let's say Amazon or others, you know your customers, you have direct access to your customers, you have control of the marketplace itself. You are able to roll out features that help both sides and which ultimately increase to have a direct effect on increased revenue. You're able to optimize, for example, with support, just rolling out new tools that your customers are providing feedback to you with when you're on another platform, you might not have the flexibility to roll out new features. It's interesting. It's almost like it's got a lot of that risk up front, but it is that platform is like the ultimate business model, it seems at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's not easy by any means. It takes a while to get going. But yeah, I mean, the fact that you have ultimate control over the customer experience is worth it, in my opinion. So I'm launching a business next week that I want to get your flash feedback on. Tell me if what I'm missing here. So we have a community on the one side listening to this podcast. So most people listening to this podcast, they're not at the stage in their career where they're able to come to DCBKK or join the DC. What they're on is this journey that starts many years before all that, where they're thinking about changing their career, getting new skill sets, but they would love an opportunity to work for a company like Municipid. Okay, so that's the vast majority of listeners right now. On the other side, we got what I think is a little bit more precious asset, which is companies like Municipid, we have a relationship with them where I can go to you and say, Greg, I would love to help solicit your job ads and post them in a way that's you know, accessible to this audience. That to me seems like the precious resource is like those style of jobs with companies that quote, get it. So my thesis is if I can generate enough job listings, that that's the constraint. So if I could have a website that has four to five new listings every week, that that thousands of people looking for jobs would be tens of thousands in a matter of months or years. And that entrepreneurs like you would someday say, you know what, I'm willing to pay for a premium listing on that site because I'm getting you know, 100 quality applications or 25 quality applications for every time I invest in that service. So what do you think about that? First of all, I think you have to focus on the source, which is the actual job opportunities. Then I would consider the size of that source. What's that universe look like? And I don't know if the DC is large enough to be able to support X number of new listings per week. So you may have to go outside of that. But I think over time, you'll start sort of finding that ratio or percentage of, all right, how many companies do we need and what percent of those are posting new job opportunities on a regular basis? But I don't think you're going to have any problem finding the applicants. So I'm going to turn the conversation to our final theme, but is there anything now that you've been thinking about it for a few minutes like that you want to share with this podcast audience about the day-to-day operations and grind of running a business, things that you might have wished you would have known when you were starting Municipid? Well, I guess the one thing is there's nothing wrong with having an unsexy business. And I think there's a lot of value in that. You know, like talking to some of these other DCers, I'm like, wow, your business is like really, really cool. Like you're, you're doing some really awesome stuff and selling cool products and offering these awesome services. And, and here we are selling vehicles and heavy equipment from government. It doesn't exactly get people excited, but, <laughs> but it's solving a problem. And I think that's kind of the one thing I, when I talk to young entrepreneurs is, really ask them and and dig deep into why they want to do what they're doing and what real problem does it solve for people and what's the value that's provided to the customer or end user. So just a little context for the the last part of the pod here. This year at the conference, DCBKK, I actually gave a talk. 
dusted off the old Google slide deck. And the topic of the talk was some thought experiments that I wished Ian and myself would have ran before we sold our business two years ago. I think that there's some different ways that, that we could have approached it to make you know better decisions through that process. And honestly, looking back on that sale, I'm still on the fence about whether or not it was the right thing to do. And one of the questions I had is like, were we motivated by emotions like boredom or, or being sick and tired of our business? And this is something that I want to discuss with Greg because he's been running Municipid for over a decade now. And, you know, he's achieved an incredible amount with the business. And I wanted to get his take on that and also why he made the commitment to fly from Philadelphia the whole way across the world to Bangkok for this event. All right, so let's start the final portion of the show, Greg. It's called High Quality Problems. All right. <laughs> let's talk about something that I don't know if has ever been a theme on this podcast before. You're doing everything right. Seven-figure business, low head count, location independent, but then something creeps into your life. It's the B word. Boredom. Not feeling like you're challenged by your business anymore. This is a reality that so many people face. And part of the reason it was such a big conversation at this event for us is like, one of the number one ways I think people turn to to solve this problem is that they sell their business, which nine times out of 10, selling your business isn't always a good financial deal. And you started your business in order to create a good financial deal. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with boredom. Yeah. I mean, so I'm 11 years into it and run essentially a fully automated business with a great team, processes behind it, a good product that we continue to develop and we're growing. And yes, I'm still, as I said, passionate about solving this problem, but you know, it doesn't require 50, 60 hours of my time. And in certain aspects, it's not challenging enough because I already know what to expect. You know, year over year, I kind of know what we're, what we're up against and it leads to a little bit of boredom, but I think it's maybe not so much boredom, but just feeling unchallenged. So what do you do about that? Is the thing about it is like you could say, well, I'm going to take the challenge to sell the business. And that would take you like a year, maybe year and a half. Who knows if you're lucky? Well, that would be a challenge. We have over the years, several companies that come in to look to acquire us. And so added to the boredom is companies interested in acquiring us. And we've had over this past summer, a very significant conversation that led to essentially an offer. But in the end, it, it sort of changed and it wasn't a good fit. Why don't you take it? For multiple reasons. The the deal kind of changed in the middle and it went from a strategic acquisition to a financial acquisition. And let's describe the difference. Yeah. So a strategic acquisition may be a competitor that kind of wants you to go away or wants to acquire your talent or your your IP or your technology. And uh financial acquisition is just the straight numbers game. 2x, 3x revenue, that sort of thing. And so we were approached by them with the strategic sort of vision that they had in in acquiring us. And then when it got down to the very end, all of a sudden, it was all about the numbers. And we were very upfront with them from the get-go that we're not. this is not a financial acquisition. We're not interested in that. We're not really even interested in selling. And quite frankly, your talk at DCBKK really solidified that for me that we're not selling. Why? Quite a few reasons. So as you were going through the questions to consider, some of these questions about how much is enough, 
you know, what are you going to do after? And none of those questions led me to, to the point where, wow, we really need to sell this. In fact, it was the opposite. Like, we're not going to sell. We're going to continue to push on the gas and move forward. The question that I have now is how much are we going to mash on the gas pedal? Do we grow as we continue are, which is phenomenal growth for our company? Or do we want to try to hit it big and 10 exit in five years? But I know what kind of stress and you know involvement on my end and that's going to take. Or quite frankly, whether or not I'm capable of growing to eight figures and you know what that looks like. You know, that's some things that I'm wrestling with. One of the things that occurred to me is, you know, in our community, when you think about like, you know, all the things that we've chained ourselves up on and all the conferences that we go to, it's all about like getting to that seven figure level and having a team and process and stuff. I've never heard anybody give a talk or I've never met anybody really in our community who's like, yeah, you know, like businesses go from seven to eight figures all the time. This isn't like some kind of strange science experiment. And there's people who know how to do that. And those people are not in my personal network. Like I don't know those people. And so, yeah, like that's a whole nother project that could be undertaken is like to get those mentors, to get, you know, that insight, to find that network. So there's a lot of work obviously involved in that, building a new network and investing that that time to figure that out. And with the risk of it not working, like we know our numbers, I, you know, I know our numbers inside and out. And, you know, I basically have a good idea of where we're going to be and I can see trends and adjust if need be, or we'll, you know, we'll try a million different things and, you know, a couple might work and most don't. We know that just with experience, you know, with 11 years doing this. But I don't know really what it's going to take to to go to eight figures. So just to sketch it out, like because I'm still thinking through all this stuff, it's like the basic idea of what I've seen is like if you can create a marketplace of hungry buyers for your business, this is like a different conversation, a different skill set. Like if there are people that are like threatened by municipid, and there's multiple people that are threatened, and I'm threatened by so and so getting municipid, now all of a sudden it's a totally different conversation than someone knocking on your door and saying. I'm the mergers and acquisitions guy from so-and-so hot company. I'm going to look good if I like basically flay you guys and bring you in. And so of course you're going to, you know, nine out of 10 entrepreneurs are going to listen to that hot M&A person because it's like, well, maybe they're going to put a check on my table. So that conversation is going nowhere. My default answer is no to that. 100%. This was one of a very few opportunities that we've had that I took seriously. So if you can create a hot marketplace of buyers go for it. Like that's completely different. And generally speaking, that's going to happen whether you've got a hot technology kind of thing, if you're below the 10 million mark, or if you're over the 10 million revenue mark, people are going to want to acquire your brand. They're going to bring you in just for revenue or whatever. Like that's sort of the sweet spot is 10 million plus. And you get this other sweet spot that's like 1 million and lower where people that want to retire, people that have a couple bucks, they come in, they'll just like take your business off your hands. I mean, I've sold a business like that where it's like, Someone just wanted a job and they wanted an opportunity and they had savings. And so they just bought the business. It took like a couple months. It was great. But then you got what a lot of our listeners in a situation in the middle where you've done something great. You've built yourself a potential retirement and a wonderful company and the deals aren't there. The enemy is really like boredom and mindset because it's like, man, now I've got this great thing going but I still have to spend 10 hours a week on it or 20 hours a week or I go on vacation, I come back and I got to like sort out this shit with my director of operations is mad about something. And, but it's this a magical thing that took you a decade to build and it's so tempting to leave it for just emotional reasons. 
And now the challenge is, is, well, how can you reset your mindset or how can you take on the new challenge of creating a hungry market of buyers or getting it to eight figures or finding ways to make it fun again? Well, I think you said it. Mindset is the biggest thing right now. And it's the mindset for me and trying to really be real with myself with what I want to do. One, do I want to take on the challenge of something I haven't done before? 10x a company to get to, to eight figures. Or do I want to continue, not cruise, because I really don't feel like we're, we're coasting or cruising because we are rolling out new things, but really taking it, and I say 10x, but whether it's 7, 8, 9, 10, 12x, it's just a different animal. It's like what's going to get you to there isn't going to want to get you to the next step. Correct. Like what got us to seven figures is not what's going to get us to, to eight figures. We may need to acquire companies to do that. And really, what are we optimizing for at that point? Are we optimizing for an acquisition once we hit eight figures? Are we going to get to eight figures and, and shoot for nine, you know, or whatever? And <laughs> so like kind of where does it end? I do think there's opportunity out there for us to grow to that size, but whether or not one, I want to do it. And two, whether I'm capable of doing it or not, I don't know. In the case of DCBK this year, I really wanted to come away with a clear understanding of the direction I wanted to go personally and in business. They really go hand in hand, you know, at the end of it. And then even, you know, the following week here in Chiang Mai, I really have a clear understanding of the direction I'm going. And, and I think it's just going to be a hybrid of, at least for now, of the sustained growth that we're having and pushing a little bit harder, maybe hiring a business development person full-time that has a lot of experience and paying them well, instead of hiring a CEO, which I'm not sure that we're ready for. Interesting. What is the crowd? How do you describe it to people back home? Why would you fly the whole way to Bangkok to come out? Having that investment in time and money to get there kind of puts people at a different level than you know, saying just a quick meetup back in the States. I think that there's a, a different level of commitment that everyone has being there. But I think everyone's there to grow. I think that's the underlying concept. Being in that same room with other people that kind of are ahead of where, like kind of where you want to be and people that have you know been where you were. And to be able to provide value to those people that are you know coming up in the ranks and to get value from the people that have been there and are where you want to be. In my mind, there's no real substitution for actually being face-to-face with someone, getting to know them, having deep-dive conversations, and just hanging out. Having a good time with people makes a big deal in, in developing those relationships. You've met so many people that are like coming up in the ranks, and they're listening to all the podcasts and reading the emails. And By the way, did you read The 4-Hour Workweek? I hate to admit it, but I only read The 4-Hour Workweek like two years ago, <laughs> and it was only for entertainment purposes at that point. It's interesting. I often think like, all right, would I have done a lot of things differently had I read that when it came out? And maybe, but I don't think so. I think the E-Myth Revisited had a much more impact with developing processes and procedures than kind of the four-hour workweek mindset. There's this canon of literature, you know, surrounding this community, like four-hour workweek is one, E-Myth is one, you know, the various podcasts that we all listen to. What is the thing that pisses you off when you're listening to these podcasts and reading these books and you're like, Ah, it's not really quite what they should be saying. Like people need to know this about growing businesses. There's kind of the Instagram and Facebook effect where all you see is the good stuff. And I think it's rare that people talk about the failures and talk about the real struggles, especially in the mindset or emotional side of, of business. I don't think it's discussed often enough. I'm get a sense that you're talking about like more ongoing stuff. Not as much now. I think my emotions or mindset is like we're here now, 
where do I really want to be and where do I want to take it? But early on, I don't have as many sleepless nights now as I did when I started this. But there are things that you, you know, your mind creates that, that aren't really there. Like what if government makes a rule that they can't sell online, you know, tomorrow? What would we do? And I try not to worry about that. My mindset has shifted over the years to really try to worry less about that stuff. But and I think the having the IT company really set me up to to be able to prepare a lot more for that because every time the phone rang at the IT company, it was a problem or someone panicking or someone worrying or whatever. And so you kind of have these panic attacks every time the phone rings. With Municipid, it was more can we get this contract? Are we good enough to get this contract? We put all this work into this contract and what if they just like the other people better, you know? And so it's more along the lines of growth than it was sort of problems, but you know, it was about like, all right, how are we going to raise money? So how's this Instagram, Facebook world screw up the perspective of younger entrepreneurs? Yeah. So I think younger entrepreneurs see these other entrepreneurs and beachside with their laptops and taking selfies and, and all these awesome locations but the reality is, when it comes down to it, they're probably huddled up into some cheap Airbnb apartment with no view or anything, and that's where the real work is, and no one ever really sees that. It's just the glitz and glam of it all that's really ever seen or talked about. I would go so far to say that there's a correlation between people that are willing to do sort of tough things. Like You're going to get beat up by your clients and then you can kind of read a book and say, oh, I should fire all my bad clients. And like, that's not so good. Or I should change my business model. Double your prices. But then there's like a whole other group of people that's like, I'm going to call every single one of them. I'm going to figure out a solution to their problem. I'm going to find a way to increase the lifetime value of these. You know what I mean? Like there's sort of, it's easy to get blown around by the wind. Yeah. And sometimes I, you know, I kind of forget about that. It comes down to understanding your customers, understanding their problems, understanding what drives them to make decisions. And, you know, what kind of makes their life easier. And I think once you understand that and communicate with them, I think you start seeing success. But people are afraid to do the hard work. They want to come and, and hang in, in Chiang Mai or in Vietnam or where have you and just chill and get in that mindset of kind of just doing what I need to do to survive here. The reality is, and that might be a good stair step, step one, but when you're trying to build a real business with real customers and real value, you have to do the hard work. And some people will argue with that and say other people should do the hard work. But at some point, you have to put in the time. Greg Barry, any parting shots on the TMBA podcast? Hardest question of all. I think it just goes back to what value are you providing and why are you doing what you're doing? I think the, you know, what is your why? How do you say that for yourself? With Municipid, our why is very clear and it's to solve this problem of governments not getting true value for their assets while these governments are in really bad financial positions, giving away stuff. And that problem is what really drives us. It's very clear for us to have that clarity around the problem you're solving and why you want to solve it is extremely important. My why is to bring stories like yours to the fore and like personalities like you to the radio, because to me, what it shows is how, I guess my fundamental why was always created from shitty jobs early on in my life thinking, I can't believe that this is like what life's going to be for me, that I'm going to like go to these freaking jobs and I'm not going to be able to like control the location of my body or anything, like just very basic things. Like I can't believe that my dad has been doing this for 35 years. I remember thinking that thought specifically, I don't know how he does it. Like, I don't know how he doesn't freak out all the time. And then to see stories like yours 
that was always like incredible breakthrough moments to me. Like this guy, Greg, he's building it for himself and he can be wherever he wants to be. And that's my why. Yeah. On a personal why it's freedom to be able to kind of write my own ticket and do what I want to do is what drives me on the personal side and then drives what's going on on the business side. So that's why I struggle with the 10X versus let's keep growing at a modest pace. Come back and let us know how you decide, Greg. Happy birthday, and thanks for joining the TNBA podcast. You got it, man. Thank you. I had a blast talking to Greg. These are the sorts of conversations that I fly around the world to have, and it's super valuable to me to be able to connect with the people who are in really unique situations like that. And yeah, it's a high-quality problem. So you've achieved your dreams. What now? What does it look like? It's invaluable to be able to speak with people that are a little bit further ahead on the road than you to help you navigate your own course. So Greg, thanks for sharing your story and for coming on the show. You can check out the notes and links and everything mentioned in this episode at tropicalmba.com slash municipid. And as always, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. By the way, one final thing about those comments. I don't know if you... Listen to the ad above, Ahrefs, if you share this episode on your Facebook page and leave a comment on this episode, tropicalmba.com slash municipid, we're giving away one free Ahrefs account every week for the next few weeks. So that's a $2,000 value. So drop by the comments and let us know what you think about this episode, and we'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.